You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Wouldn't it be an irony if the, the very thing we think we will gain when we turn away from God is the very thing He wants to give us? Or wouldn't it be an irony if the greatest fear that we have if we were to give our lives to God, is exactly what we find when we don't give our lives to God. I mean, he, 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 the very thing that we want to find, our freedom, is the very thing that God wants to give us, freedom. And the thing that we most fear if we give our lives to God, slavery, is the very thing that we fall into when we turn away from Him. It's a strange thing. This is a sense in which Jesus speaks of being lost in his uh, teachings. And he tells us a story about being lost. But more importantly, he tells a story about being lost so that we can understand how it is that we are found. Jesus tells this very well-known story, the story of the prodigal son, to a group of religious people in his day who are scoffing that he spends so much time... With sinners. In fact, Luke tells us they were grumbling. Grumbling. Jesus says, This is no time for grumbling. This, friends, is a day of great celebration and joy. This is a day when the dead are coming to life. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Lives are being changed. People are being healed. They're being renewed. They're being transformed. It's true back then. It's true in our day as well. Some of you can testify that Jesus Christ is transforming you. He's changing you. You have an experience. And it's an experience of joy, of celebration. Jesus says, don't be grumbling on a day of celebration. And so he tells a story. He tells a story about two who are lost and how it is that we can become found. Let's take out our Bibles together and open up to Luke chapter 15. You'll find that on page 850 of the Pew Bible. And let's stand and read God's Word aloud in His presence before Him. Uh, and I, and I, let's, I'd like to begin right in the middle of the paragraph here. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 20, down through the end of the paragraph, verse 24. After we're finished reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And if you think it might be true, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's word. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, put his arms around him and kissed him. <clears throat> then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. So you see, there are two ways of getting lost. 
And there's one way of getting found. I'm going to talk about that with you. Uh, the first way of getting lost is to be lost in disobedience. Lost in disobedience. How do you say the disobedience? How does that come into the story of the prodigal son? Well, I'm not sure we think of it this way, but listen to how this story unfolds. I'm going to read the beginning of it. The story of the younger two brothers. Starts in verse 11. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided his property between the two boys. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, that no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am. Dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. I say uh, disobedience. But you think of through our eyes, I would suggest that we see this uh, young man rather differently. I mean, to us, He's a man who simply leads home, leaves home. And those of us who are younger siblings might have a few reasons why one would do that. You know, if the uh, younger sibling, so everything uh, I can do, you can do better, right? We're constantly living in the shadow of this person. And, and here's a young man, you know, late in adolescence, early adulthood, who says to himself, I am going to go out and figure out who I am in the world. I leave my older brother behind always does the right thing. I, I'm going to leave the uh, patriarchal home with all of its norms and structures, and I'm going to go and live a truly authentic life to discover who I am. And, I, you know, I think that the Bible describes that really well as disobedience. We think of disobedience oftentimes as breaking a rule or defying some norm where someone has said, thou shalt not. But really, in the Bible, disobedience is moving ourselves off the center of our being. It's, it's straying from our Creator, the one who is the ground of our existence, and trying to step onto some other ground, any other ground, to define or to invent ourselves, to find for ourselves just what will shape our lives. And that's what this young man is doing. But Yale theologian Miroslav Volf uses this phrase. I love it. He says, this younger brother is unsunning himself. Unsunning himself. And, and it's easy to miss this at first, but if you read the text carefully, you see that Jesus gives us some clues. First clue is that we don't have anybody's name in this story. 
It's the way we usually think of identity. What we have in this story for identity are uh, relational terms. Father, son, brother. They know who they are in relationship to one another, and we know who they are. You see, and uh, more than that, we also see that these nouns are uh, modified by pronouns. His brother, your son, your father. So that really we know them as they know themselves only in the context of their relationships uh, with one another. And this younger son says essentially to his father, what I want from you, I can get only when you cease to exist. When you are no longer a factor in my life. He cashes him out. He asks for his inheritance early. And you know, you and I know what that would mean. That would mean, Dad, I, I want you just uh, for what you can be to me when you are dead and gone. What a painful thing for a father to hear. And yet he does. As you know, the firstborn son always the perfect one, uh, gets everything. In, the, in Israelite culture, you know, a double measure goes to the firstborn son. So this father has to divide his property into thirds, and he has to liquidate, he has to sell a third to give cash to the son who will run off on this project of unsunning himself, of finding out who he is, not in relationship to his creator and loving father, but who he can be all on his own. The father will signify this for us later when he says, My son was dead. Dead. And this will become literally the experience of this young man as he finds himself in the distant country. And always the mythology of his own sufficiency apart from the creator uh, starts to break down. He runs out of money, wealth. And there is, of course, a crisis. There's a recession, famine. And he's got no resources. He doesn't so much hire himself. The Greek actually says he attaches himself. I don't think he hires himself to this man because he's not getting paid anything. He's hungry. and said no one would give him anything. No, he's been debased. He's desperate. And he finds himself in a very offensive place. A Jewish young man in a pigsty. And he says, I am dying. It's a liminal experience. He's just drifting out of his being. How do you define yourself? Well, there are a lot of, there are infinite number of ways that we can do this. But oftentimes they categorize for us sort of the great lights of the I don't know, 20th, 21st century uh, money, sex, and power. Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. Right? Uh, New York City, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. It's kind of an attractional quality to the promises of these places and these powers. And they begin to define our being. If we're not careful, we become lost in our disobedience. N.T. Wright makes the point that you know, it's a little bit of a cautionary tale in the last uh, few months and years when we think about these three uh, deities. We have this subprime mortgage crisis. Think of how much wealth has been lost you know, in the last year. And we look out over the globe and we see this absolute epidemic horror of an age crisis in which two million people die every year. And then we think about power. We'll never think about power differently. Uh, the same, excuse me, after 9-11. These will ultimately lead us to destruction. They will ultimately leave us to a place, not of freedom, but of absolute slavery. We have lost who we are. So we can be lost in disobedience. 
There are infinite options in front of each of us, and we have the sense that freedom means being able to choose whatever I want to choose other than being who God has made me to be. And yet, when we make those choices, out in the distant land, the mythology will evaporate and we will find ourselves nothing but slaves. God says, that's not what I want for you. There's a second way of being lost, and it's uh, being lost in obedience. You say, well, obedience? Isn't that the opposite of disobedience? And if disobedience is the way we get lost, then I would think that obedience is the way we get found. And that is the logic of conventional religion. That is, in fact, the logic of the people to whom Jesus is speaking when he tells this story in the first place. We remember this as the story of the prodigal son. It's really the story of the elder brother. That's why Jesus tells the story. The climax comes at the end of the story. And the elder brother serves as a proxy for those of us who lose ourselves in obedience. Remember, the story begins, there was a man who had two sons. And so listen to the story of the elder son. It starts in verse 25. Now, his elder son was in the field. He's working. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, well, what's going on? The slave uh, replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and begged to plead, began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your commandment. Yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And then the father said to him, Son, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. I don't know about you, but I suspect there are more than a few of us in this room, like myself, who really don't find the elder brother very appealing. I, I mean, don't you love the story of the prodigal son? It's a good story. It's a story of redemption. I mean, at least you could honor the story. It's kind of behind, it's a narrative behind every good movie or book that we read, and yet he doesn't. And he seems so judgmental. And, and we're not in that way. You know, we, we, we get along with people that are different. We, we accept people that... And, and he doesn't. So we don't find him very compelling, but be very careful. The problem that Jesus is describing is not a problem between the elder brother and the younger brother. The problem Jesus is describing is the problem between the elder brother and the father. And we have that same problem, friends. I think you'll find that we live with the older brother. Because for us, oftentimes, the path to freedom runs through performance. Runs through accomplishment. Runs through our hard work. 
If you can find yourself uh, tempted to finish any of these sentences, you'll, you'll know that you have participated in the lostness of obedience. If I, for example, get into the right school. If only I make the right grades. If only I make a, a big enough salary. If only I meet the right people. If only I put in the hours, exceed the job standards, eat the right food and get the right exercise, say my prayers and do good deeds. If only I do it the way it is supposed to be done, then the reward will be mine. Mine. Does that philosophy not shape my life? Madeline Levine is a uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, excuse me, in Marin County, California. She's written a book, about three years old now, The Price of Privilege, How Parental Pressure and Material Advantage Are Creating a Generation of Disconnected and Unhappy Kids. Madeline Levine describes what she says is an epidemic. Upper middle class homes, children between the ages of 12 and 18 are experiencing uh, epidemic proportions of uh, depression, anxiety disorder, and substance abuse. She says 30 to 40 percent of our children right now. And she quotes uh, Cindy Goodwin, who's the director for Youth and Family Services here on Mercer Island. So many kids are pressured to be perfect. We're a small community and everyone knows how everyone else is doing. So first, kids try to be perfect and then they become anxious and finally phobic. What, what Madeleine Levine is arguing is that what's happening is that we have created this performance society for our children. And we have told them what you need for life is going to the best school, getting the best grade, having the best summer job, building the best resume, marrying the right person, living in the right neighborhood, making the right salary. And our kids get it. They understand it. They get the message. And they can do it. Bless their hearts. They can play that game. They do the select sports. They get the grades. And, but what Madeline Levine is arguing is that's all external. On the inside, we have hollowed them out. We have not given them a chance to know who they really are and what they just want to do, what they love because of who they are. So uh, Levine says, you know, the problem is not with high expectations. She says, on the contrary, high expectations are found to promote achievement and competency in children. And here she puts this in bold. It's when a parent's love is experienced as conditional on achievement that children are at risk for serious emotional problems. Friends, not only children. Not only children. For all these years, I have been working for you like a slave. I have kept all the rules. I've never broken a single commandment that you've given me. Lost in his Obedience, he's saying to the Father, I now see the difference between the world in which I live and the world in which you live, Father. See, the world in which I live is the world in which good things happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. But think, Father, about the world in which you live. You, you want to live in a world in which bad things can happen to good people? And good things can happen to bad people? Take it to its logical extreme. 
If this were the world in which we were living, then this would be a world in which a perfect person, for example, might be able to come into the worst kind of tragedy. And people who were most wicked could come into the greatest of all wonders. Is that the world you want to live in? It's not the world that the elder son chooses for himself. And we see how he begins to respond. First of all, in verse 29, he gives us a little speech that I've just been describing for you. And it's interestingly the reverse speech of the younger son on his strategy of return when he comes back, you know. He, he was going to say, and, and he did start to say until the father interrupted him, you know, father, I'm unworthy to be a son. Treat me like a slave. And here this guy goes, man, I've been working like a slave for you. The father just shakes his head. And, and the elder brother begins to unsun himself as well. He's backing away now towards the perimeter of the property. We find him at the distant edge of the field. He will not go into that home to experience any celebration. And, and, and now he's starting to uh, no longer refer to the father as the father. He's only a you to him. And his brother is no longer his brother. It's your son. You see him unsunning himself. It can happen to anybody. It can happen to religious people. It can happen to people who know the grace of Jesus Christ. Even one who knew Jesus personally. Even one who stood up on Pentecost and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Spirit. Peter himself would need a reminder. But the Apostle Paul would have to one day write Peter in Galatians 3, Are you so foolish, Peter? Having started with the Spirit by grace, are you now ending with the flesh by works? Does God supply you with the Spirit? Remember Pentecost. And work miracles among you by doing the works of the law? Or by your believing what you have heard? Oh, we can be lost in obedience. We look for freedom in disobedience. We'll find ourselves enslaved to whatever we make more important than God. If we find freedom, seek freedom in obedience, we'll find ourselves enslaved to the demands of perfect performance, both lost, both unsunned. There's no freedom in disobedience. There's no freedom in obedience. But Jesus wants to tell us where there is freedom. And he tells this story as the climax of three stories, and they're all stories about someone finding something that's so precious to them, it pulls them into rejoicing. Rejoicing in heaven, rejoicing in the home. No, God wants us to be free. And he makes us free by making us his children. This is the story of the Exodus. We read it earlier today. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Egypt is the place of slavery. God says, I do not want you living as slaves. In disobedience or in obedience, I want you living as daughters. As sons, I want you in the home with the celebration. That's the transformational moment in this story. That's the turning point. We've been asking the wrong question. If with these two, we've been asking the question, what is it that's mine in life? What is it that I can spend, the younger brother? What is it that I can earn, the older brother? What is mine? And Jesus says with this story, it's not what is yours, it's what is mine. It's the one to whom you belong that makes you free. You belong to a loving Father. 
There are, there are three characters in the story, obviously, and, and there's only one who's free. And there's one who's very free. It's the character of the father. He is free to offer his life in the form of an inheritance to his son. Everything that he has, he gives to these two boys. He's free to yearn for a lost son going to the edge of the field to watch for his return. He's free to feel the pain of compassion when the broken boy returns. The father is free to do what a man of means and dignity would almost certainly not have done to hitch up his robe and run to the son. He's free to throw himself on the man's neck and kiss him fervently. He's free to call for gifts and sacrificial calves and saying, put them on them. He's free to leave the celebration to seek his other son and invite him in. And he's free to beg that he come with passionate pleas. Oh, he doesn't want to enslave anybody. He lets them both go. He, co he compels no one, but he invites by a father's love. And then he resons. He says, you are my son. To the younger with these tokens. And to the elder, you are my son. Absorb that. Son. The freedom of the Father is the freedom that we see in Jesus Christ and the beauty as well. Jesus, the most beautiful life, the freest life that was ever lived on the face of this planet. Free to speak truth. Free to challenge the authorities. Free to sit with the outcast. Free to touch the defiled. To cry with the bereaved. To heal the sick. To stare the cross in the face. To give one's life for others. Jesus is free to bring back the dead to life. And the point of the story isn't that we should emulate the freedom of the Father. The, f the point of the story is that we can discover the freedom of the Son by being in the Son, by being His daughter, His Father. This is the freedom of Jesus. And this is our destiny, as the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1. He has destined us for adoption. That's the mystery. As His children... Through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. It's this beloved that runs after you. He runs after you this morning. He says to you, do you know who you are? Not because of what you do. Not because of who you think you are apart from me. Do you know who you are as my son, as my daughter? Augustine of Hippo the great 4th century theologian and pastor, took him a long time to discover who he was. And I want to close with uh, words of joy, words of celebration when he discovered that he belonged to a father who loved him. A father who brought him into existence and a father who loves him not because of what he does, but simply because of his grace. Words of Augustine, How late I came to love you, how late I came to love you. Oh, beauty so ancient and so fresh, how late I came to love you. You were within me while I had gone outside to seek you. Unlovely myself, I rushed towards all those lovely things you had made. <laughs> always, always, you were with me, but I was not with you. All these beauties kept me far from you. Although they would not have existed at all unless they had their being in you. You called. You cried. You shattered my deafness. 
You sparkled, you blazed, you drove away my blindness. You shed your fragrance and I drew in my breath and I pant for you. I tasted and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me and now I burn with longing for your peace. Let's speak to our Father now. God, if we could imagine the most perfect of all fathers. We didn't all have them, but if we could imagine what perfect fatherhood would look like. We will know who we are. We know that we can cease our striving. Running after something else. Or running into our own frenzied performance. Truly in Jesus Christ, the truth has set us free. May we rest in that. Be reminded of that again and again and again. In his name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.